0: So, don't even know how. All right. I don't know if I have a sermon title for this one. You know, I, I, I actually struggled all week about what I wanted to teach on, and, and I wanted to teach on giving, but I, I have a hard time on, on uh, not on teaching on giving, but just, uh, I think, moving on. When we, when we finish Easter, I have a hard time moving on from Easter. I guess because I spend so much time talking about the cross and everything that goes on in the gospel, it's hard to just, like, leave it. And, um, the gospel is such, such power. I mean, it really is. It's such power that I have a hard time moving on. And so this morning, I mean, that's, I can't do it. I can't move on from it. Uh, so I want to talk to you about Jesus this morning. I want to talk about what happens after Easter a little bit. And uh, we spend so much time, you know, you spent like three weeks. So I spent talking about, you know, the cross, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. But and my brain kind of works horizontally; it just keeps kind of going, right? So we, we, most of that is happening at the end of the Gospels, and it's just like taking right off into the Book of Acts and and uh, um, straight into this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but the one thing we need more of these days is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Lest we forget, and lest you forget, we're Pentecostal. I'm Pentecostal. I believe in an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. I, I believe in all things supernatural. I believe in, in, in God doing great and mighty things. I, I think God can take ordinary people and make something supernatural and extraordinary out of it. Uh, and I think God can take one person and still make a change that's significant across decades, if not more uh, centuries. I mean there the, the Holy Spirit has always been a promise. And it's waiting there for anybody who lay claim to it. Uh, and it's always been this thing, this idea before Easter and before all this time, uh, the Holy Spirit's always been this idea. this It's a promise that just is like sitting there waiting for us to lay hold of it. And it laid all the way back in the Old Testament. We see it in the uh, book of Joel. Uh, the prophet in, 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 in chapter 2, verse 28 of, of Joel, it says then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon your people. All people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your Young men will see visions. So, from long ago, this has been something that's been talked about. It's coming. Get ready. Uh, and it's just sat there and it lay in waiting. And then the New Testament comes, and Jesus kind of gives us this little spark of hope uh, that it's a going to come. It's approaching even faster than we think. In John 16, 7 and 8, he says, But in fact, that it's best for you that I go away because if I don't, if I don't, go if the advocate won't come and if i don't if i do go away then then i will send him to you and when he comes he will convict the world of its sin and and god and of god's righteousness and the coming judgment and at this point it's all just words i mean at this point nobody knows what to expect i mean it seems pretty crazy what joel says and 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 jesus gives us this idea of a comforter someone who's who's coming to help us, who's coming to give us hope and, and give us life. But it's all just words. But we, we know kind of what to expect and because we read on. And, and again, the horizontal move, we moved from the, the cross to the death of Jesus to the resurrection life of Jesus. Now Jesus has ascended. What is next? But the Holy Spirit. And so Acts 2, we, we know this. This is If you're Pentecostal, you know this. This is like your bread and butter. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or... Tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So a whirlwind begins to happen of supernatural in Jerusalem. Unexplainable things. People are acting uh, like they're drunk. I mean, that's basically what it says. It says these are not drunk like you suppose, right? These are not. It's, listen, it's not even time to start drinking yet is what he says. What I love is that there's a time, right? Like it's not it's not even 12 yet. Right? It was way too early for drinking. But they're acting drunk which is to say something's not right here and it's obvious. It's obvious something's not right here. They're not in full control of their own bodies because they're acting as if they're staggering. They're acting as if something is knocking them down. They're acting strange. People are starting to speak even stranger things in these weird language tongue thing and yet it's all being translated into a language that you can understand so that you can understand the gospel but that isn't the end of the holy spirit now we stop at acts 2 and we go look how crazy this thing is no but that's not the end that's only the beginning that's how it shows up it shows up it like the wind but but in chapter 3 it keeps on going In chapter 3, Peter lays his hands on a crippled beggar, silver and gold have I none, but what I give to thee in the name of Jesus, and this man begins to walk. In chapter 4, the first outreachers are starting to take place. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you, I know we hate it, but the liberals didn't create socialism, God did, where the collective whole takes care of everybody else, where we all pitch in to take care of each other, that actually is biblical act stuff right there. By the way, let me me just clarify that I don't think it's the government responsibility to impose socialism. I think it's the church's. Chapter chapter 5, the apostles are recorded as healing all kinds of sick people. And for the first time, they face opposition. Is it the pharmaceutical companies? Nope. You would think so. It's the church. In chapter 8, Philip is supernaturally transported like Star Trek or something for the sake of witnessing the gospel. He just miraculously appears on this road, doesn't know how he got there, and he's witnessing to an Ethiopian to which once that's done, he miraculously is taken away. I, don't, I can't explain that. Chapter 9, the Holy Spirit knocks Paul off his horse on the way to kill Christians and is converted supernaturally. Now, I could keep going every chapter and show you where the Holy Spirit is starting to move in the house of believers. It leaves Jerusalem and starts going over all over the world. And the rest of it is all filled. If go read the book of Acts, it's all filled with signs and wonders that are beyond imagination that are created by the Holy Spirit. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit is so overwhelming. That we forget it was preceded oftentimes by, or we we it preceded it all by the apostles simply obeying Christ to pray and wait for it. Pretty simple, <laughs> pretty simple actually. Acts one four, Jesus tells them not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. He says, "Stay, stay put. You better sit still." Matter of fact, here's what's coming, and he <coughs> he quotes Acts <coughs> Acts one eight right. Acts one eight is. That the Holy Spirit is coming to do what? To be my witness. It's an evangelistic pull, an evangelistic draw. It is coming to those so that you can tell the gospel. Not for any other purpose, but for telling the gospel. Why is the Holy Spirit doing signs and wonders? So that God can be made known. So that the gospel can be made known. It exists for that. It exists to go out. Jesus explains that the Holy Spirit will help them in telling this story. So that when you go and tell them, they'll believe it. They'll believe it because you are full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 115, we see that they've remained in the place. Listen, I don't care. This is uncomfortable. They've remained in one place for a long time, 120 of them sitting up there. They prayed and they waited just like Jesus told them to do. Now, here's my problem as I read this. Today we don't see the Holy Spirit as much. We've developed theologies to explain his departure, such as dispensationalism, which is to say that God moves differently today based off each generation, so that each generation can be obedient to the call that God has given on them. That is to imply that the Holy Spirit does not move during our generation like it did in their generation, therefore... This is just a a different way that God is trying to teach us, and we are to stay faithful and be obedient to the things that God has for us today. It just happens not to be the Holy Spirit like we see back then. Yeah, it doesn't sound right to me, but man, that's a very strong Baptist theology, very strong Methodist theology, and they've survived the years by believing it. I mean, with our gifting and our use of technology today, though, we have uh, tapped into emotionalism. We've tapped into atmosphere control. Uh, uh, rather than when we don't have the Holy Spirit there, we improvise. We have become very gifted. We've become very good at putting makeup on. We've become very good at making you... F- Listen, you go to a rock concert that's got nothing to do about Jesus, you can feel inspired. It's amazing to see that many people with that kind of lights and this atmosphere that they can create through technology can absolutely inspire you. You don't even have to hear a word of somebody saying. You can be in an environment be inspired by the beauty of such things. We know that something's missing in the church today. We do. But for some reason, it's taboo to kind of admit it either. We don't want to admit that the Holy Spirit might be less around these days than it was before. We just don't. To say that it is, we're like, oh, well, you're just not believing, brother. Or you're, just not, you're just going to the wrong church, or you're just going to this or this or that. It's always, there's always an excuse, right? As if God is letting us down, or maybe more that, uh, the more that people will see our lack of intimacy with God. We don't want to admit that either, because if the Holy Spirit is less, it means we're not doing something right, because we haven't created an environment that's holy enough for Him to come into. What does it say about us? Cri- the temple of God within us. I mean, what happened? Where is revival? I mean, our history teaches that revival comes really to just those who seek it. It's not difficult. It's not hard. I mean, the history of revival is very simple. Matter of fact, in in 1896, it began a little bit like this in the last 100 years. In 1896, in North Carolina and Topeka, Kansas, there was a couple of little groups that started spawning up. One particular man, Charles Parham, led a small group of believers and just started praying. And next thing you know, these little prayer meetings started to develop. And the Holy Spirit began to show up and some crazy things began to happen. But nobody really took notice of what was happening. uh, uh, Until all of a sudden, this little prayer group started prophesying. Wait a minute. What is this? This little prayer group began to speak in tongues. Whoa, whoa. And this is the beginning. This is uh, the first that people start to hear that God is on the move. It's not even that far later, right? Rumors of this kind of stuff speculate and they begin to carry. Why? Because the Holy Spirit won't be stopped. All right? It begins to move and it begins to roll. And as it begins to roll around 1904 and 1905, there is a young man by the name of Evan Roberts that begins to. Uh, 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 start to be moved by God, and, and Evan Roberts is a man who was known to pray for hours daily. He was known to go to multiple, several prayer meetings weekly, and in 1904-1905, uh, uh, working in the coal mines, working in college, staying up at night to memorize scriptures and pray at night, uh, 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 there in the black hole underneath the ground, uh, his prayer life led into revival, what would be called the Welsh Revival's. I mean, and the crazy thing is it really took over all of Wales, England. I mean, it didn't just go from one church like where he was at. It was like the whole town got crazy. Uh, I remember reading the book. uh, I was there. I saw the Welsh Revival. And in that book, it said the craziest thing about it is if you know coal miners, they tend to have a mouth. That's the implication that it says. It doesn't say exactly what they say, but I think we all got a clue of what that might be, what gets said in the darkness. The things that men might talk about when no one can hear and he says, you know, the strange thing, these vulgar words were replaced with hymns that they would sing when they got off work. That the police officers rolling down the street in the middle of the night when nobody thinks anybody's around, they're singing hymnals. And it had changed the whole town. It had changed every single church was full. The guy that writes the story says, you couldn't go to any church in town. And there were people laid out wailing and crying and confessing out loud all their sins. And he goes, things that make you blush. They were screaming it and yelling it, wanting to confess, wanting to be clean, wanting to be made holy. And the real revival shook all of England. So it's no surprise that uh, across the water in California, a man named Will, William Seymour began to pray. Now, William's a little bit different than most back in this day because in 1906, William is a black man. He's a minority, not like a minority today, like uh, a lot of people don't like black folks back then. So all of a sudden you have this minority who is considered a lesser race of his time. As foolish as that sounds, it's true, right? Begins to start praying at a house. Now it's it's it's, at a, it's Bonnie Bray Street is actually where he begins praying. But as he began praying, other people started to join him. And so many people started to join him in prayer that at some point they laugh about him because he used to take a shoebox and stick it on his head just to ignore everybody else so he could just be alone in his prayer. But there began to be so many they had to convince him, hey, we need to move over to Azusa Street. At the Azusa Street House, we can pray there, there's more people there. And it said that people begin to flock there. They would hang out the windows and just try to listen to the prayers. They would hang out just want the glory to come. And you know what was said about Azusa? That people would come and leave feeling drunk and speaking in unknown languages. It became such a popular place. Over time, the news of the Holy Spirit began to spread out elsewhere and it said that preachers came for miles. As a result, the Holy Spirit uh, 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 began to move believers and gather them across all America, making, listen, it began to make preachers out of nobodies. These guys showed up just to see what God was doing and all of a sudden became these anointed preachers that started sweeping the land. I mean, everywhere. They started planting churches and putting churches out everywhere, right? And while other revivals had stirred the intellect of men, I mean, people thought these things were smart and they'd seen, they were amazed. And in all this revival, the Azusa revival, was an external, external display of the Holy Spirit in its fullness and power and working in men. You could see it taking place. Many seeking the deeper things of God that went out there looking, they were excommunicated from their faith. I mean, basically, they had to say, I'm, I'm going to take this leap here, and I'm going to leave everything that I've known, and I'm about to be rejected by everybody I've known. And this is our history. And we were born of blood and spirit. We were meant to move and interact with God. But we're so far today from where we need to be. We're so far. Statistics today, and now this is according to a a popular leadership magazine called Church Leader. Um, This is some of the statistics they throw out today that's so disheartening at where we're at today. They say that church attendance is at an all-time low. Less than 20% of our population today attend church. And while that might not have anything to do with your salvation, the longer you're away from other believers, the harder it becomes to maintain a holy holy life. That's just the truth, man. Church doesn't save you. You've heard me say that a million times, but I tell you this, it's hard to stay saved if you ain't around people who are. It is. It's hard to keep your mouth clean if you work with a whole bunch of people that don't have one. It's hard to stay sober at the bar. I mean, let's just be honest about that. It's hard. It's hard. We forsake the, when we forsake the assembly of each other, what we're doing is put, laying down our walls, the things that fortify and protect us and hold us into accountability and correct us. The things that keep us on the straight and narrow. Now, does it, does it make us save that we come? No, attendance never makes you save, but it is smart. It is profitable. The American church, they say, is in a steady decline. Currently, only large and small churches are getting bigger. Well, that, that's good news, right? Except for this one, they say, well, while mid-sized churches are declining. Guess who's getting them? So, why those two or three hundred churches, one to three hundred churches are headed down, bigger churches are benefiting and smaller churches are benefiting, which shows you one of two things. People either want to be a part of something or they don't want to be anything at all. Because there's only 10% of the church really doing anything. So, you go to a big church so you can disappear and say you come on Sunday, or you go to a small church and work your tail off. <laughs> Amen, right? Amen. Established churches are dying. Churches have been around 150 years, 190 years or so. They're they're dying by the wayside. And if there's nobody to plant, there's nobody to create new churches, there will be no more new churches. By 2050, they say the percentage of Christians attending church will be half of what it was in 1990. So even though our population is increasing, the gospel is not going out. We are declining as a church, and even more so in our population, we're declining. Now, I think there are a few factors that we we have to take into consideration here. Let's just be open and honest about where we're at today. One of those is the millennial factor. For my millennials in here, it's a wake-up call, right? 73% of people identify as a Christian. In this nation, of the population, 73% of that population identify as a Christian. Thanks to the millennials, we don't care what anybody identifies as, because sometimes people identify as a woman that are men. So we have come to learn, thank you to millennials, that identifying as something and actually being something are two different things. You can identify as a man all you want, but biology says it one way or the other. You can identify as something all you want. It doesn't matter if you're not it. And by the way, it's obvious when you aren't. You can identify, you could say you're Christian, but your life and the fruit of your life will bear witness to that testimony. (laughs) There's the Facebook factor. Now, Facebook, one thing that it's actually done is it showed us that we have learned and we have learned to shape and control our own story. Or at least we know how to put on the show. Our Facebook feed, if that was our life, we've learned how to narrate our story so that everybody sees what exactly we want them to see. So that anything anybody knows about us is exactly what they see on either social media or they don't see nothing about us at all. That's one or the other. And whatever life we present on Facebook is the only one most people are ever going to know. It's just the truth that where our society's at. That being said, we're really good to show our happiest moments. Rarely do we show our hurt moment unless we really want sympathy. And so we throw that line out there for sympathy and try to hook everybody's sympathies as best we can. And this is our life, man. It's a big fake show. We fill or we fill our feed so much with good stuff or God stuff and all these things that we forget that we're losing friends and family by the wayside. We can get so consumed in our uh, Christian ease that we don't see anything else. And we can be like, really, is the world that bad? And like, so there's like two either two things really happen here. We either don't acknowledge that the world's on fire and we're on Facebook or we just don't care because we don't realize it because we filled our feed with nothing but stuff that we never see negative. We've never seen anything that contrasts our opinion. We never see anything that contradicts us. We never see anything that, that opposes us. We never see anything of how the actual rest of the world feels it's falling away. Or the entertainment factor. Man, never has there been a day where movies are more awesome than today. I mean the entertainment industry, the, the you, you can get movies to your phone, you can, you can see videos all day, you can listen to music all day. You, you can go anywhere at any time and see anything you want you never have to sit alone and in the quiet ever ever because you have entertainment at the palm of your hands lastly there's just the plain old self factor the one jesus has been talking about forever in a world where everything really is about you you're the star of your show you're the star of your social media you're the star of your you're the dj of your life man and you're playing your own song through your whole life. That's just how it is. Most of us, most of us men wouldn't know the cross if we saw it or felt it. We're self-consumed in our own lives. Mm. And and most often, thanks to all the others before, we're oblivious to the plight of others. Hello, politicians. And the, And the hardest thing probably I'll have to say this morning, many, many of us couldn't 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 come up with the last time we shared the gospel with somebody. Most most people I meet in the church couldn't tell me the last time they shared the gospel. Which might explain why there's a struggle with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 8 said it's for the gospel, for the telling of the gospel. And when we fail to tell the gospel, what do we need the Holy Spirit for? It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. Where there is no Holy Spirit, where a church has lost the Holy Spirit, I would say to you that that church doesn't witness or evangelize. Because what do you need it for? If you're not going to tell people about Jesus and live a life of telling people about the gospel, then what do you need to walk in it for? What do you need the signs and wonders for? Man, we need revival. We need revival. You want to know what burdens me, what makes me cry all the time, what makes me so upset, every soapbox rant I've ever been on. It all comes down to what I long for more than anything else. The reason why I think we break strings, the reason why I think we have internal conflict, the reason why, uh, uh, like my wife this morning, praying hard and being led into tears. You want to know what makes us cry is knowing, knowing with everything in us that we need revival, trying so hard to get to it, and the enemy coming in every chance he can get. I mean, I'm like you. I can see empty tables, and I've seen this place full. And just like you, I can be disheartened by those things. Or I can see it as the enemy, because I tell you, that's how I see it. I see it as the enemy. I'm ne- you're, it, the enemy wants to come into me right now, man, and say, hey, you need to do like all these other pastors and just like do behavior modification, man preach some hard stuff on them, make them come to church, guilt them, you know, guilt them really good, and that's going to do it. But the truth of the matter is I can't take tr- tr- truth. It's either truth or it's not. And the truth of the matter is attendance doesn't make you safe, but attendance does help you stay safe. But that's not what's going to bring revival, church attendance. So I, I could beat that up, but that's not going to help me. I want revival. And I want revival for you here. Because revival here will spawn out revival everywhere. Like the book of Acts, the Spirit poured itself out everywhere. They were desperately waiting that which Jesus had asked them to wait for. Jesus says, wait, and they say, okay. Man, we ain't moving until this thing happens. That's some desperate stuff, man. And then persecution begins to spread the gospel every world, right? The world hates it. The devil hates it, man. They all tried to kill it, right? I mean, Paul is on his way to kill folks. And what I love the conversation about Ananias, right? Because it's like God comes to Ananias. Hey, I need, there's a man Paul that's coming to see you. And he's like, yeah, the dude's going to kill everybody. I'm thinking like, no, I think you got the wrong guy. You don't send murderers to my house, God. That's not how this works. <laughs> I mean, but God what? God works through the Holy Spirit that way. God wants the Ethiopians to be saved. What do you do? Man, if I've got to send Philip across everything and just supernaturally get him there, then that's what I'm going to do to save the Ethiopian. You know, there was a time where Christians actually believed that everything wasn't by happenstance, but that you were there for a purpose to tell us. When you bumped into somebody at Walmart or you bumped into somebody at HB, that it was on purpose so you could tell them about the gospel and invite them to church. Can you believe that? I say that sarcastically, and I know you see that, but still, we act like that's new. The world hates it, man. The devil hates it, so they're all going to try to kill it. That's why devastation has always been the one of the ways revival comes as well. So if it's not by desperation, it's either by devastation. But one way or another, the gospel is going to go out. I mean, like well, like the Welsh and the Sousa revivals, it started in small communities, in small little homes. In small little places with a tiny few amount of people—I mean, like a tiny few—it didn't start in big megachurches. Spurgeon didn't rein it in with his ten thousand members, right? I mean, like let's look look, look back at all the famous preachers—they didn't do it. Samuel Chadwick and his great prayer and talk about Pentecost—he didn't rein any of that stuff in. Nobody's did. Anybody ever heard the sermons that, that William Seymour spoke? You didn't because he prayed revival in. Anybody heard the sermons of Evan Roberts? No, because he prayed it in. He was a coal miner, a regular man, a common man. There were poor folks working in coal mines there at the Welsh. And in in California, they were African-Americans that were racially hated. I have a tendency these days, somebody asked me, where do I think revival will come from? I said the homosexual community, because that's the last place we'll go to witness. It started in prayer meetings. Where they prayed for hours, small little groups of people. They did not care that nobody showed up. They were determined to pray if it was just them. Man, there are some things to be learned here. There are some things to be learned here. All revival is preceded with prayer and unity. Acts 1, same place. They're in one mind, in one accord. They're in one place, unity, in prayer, waiting, waiting, desperately for God. All revival comes to those who seek it earnestly, like it's the last drop of water. I mean, it's the only thing out there. I I know that I'm going to die if we don't have it. All revival creates significant change to not only the individual, but the city they lived in, the state to which they lived in, the nation, and ultimately the world. Do you know that the Assemblies of God, they credit their beginnings to the Azusa revival, and they're all over the world. The Church of God credits their beginning to the Azusa revival, and they're all over the world. There's a ton of other denominations that were birthed out of that whole thing because one black guy prayed. I mean, think about it. Evan Roberts, a year before, this young kid in the dark coal mines begins praying and Welsh sees a, a storm fly through for which they've never seen and people getting saved everywhere. One year later, all the way across the water to California, a whole other revival starts to happen in America. Revival starts in desperation and devastation. It comes from an acknowledge and admit, admittance of our own need for God. We need Him. And what's killing us today is we are neither desperate for Jesus nor have our lives been devastated in such a way that we would give hours to prayer for the sake of significant change. Our biggest problem today is we have everything we need. Come on, that's a first world problem too. We literally, I mean, we've talked about this before. We've had people go to jail for what? For the fact that they've been raised their whole life, they can do whatever they want and everything else, and so that got them off from actually getting in any trouble for killing folks. He had an entitlement problem. That's a first world problem, by the way. Africa doesn't struggle with entitlement issues. We have everything we need, and we need nothing. We need nothing. There is no love for prayer or the prayer meeting. It should be the most loved thing there is. It's the Cinderella of this all services. I like what John Piper said. <laughs> Robert, Robert called me this week and, and gave me this one. He says, one of the greatest uses of Facebook and Twitter will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Ooh, that's a gut punch. All, all of this leaves me with questions. What will it take for us, collectively, all of us, to be desperate? What, what will it take? Will, will it take devastation? Because I think there's been a lot of things that happened over the years that's brought America to its knees. I don't know about you, but I thought 9-11 was bad. Churches filled up for about three months and then just dished it right back out, which shows you we don't have anything to keep anybody. We should have showed you that we were struggling already with the Holy Spirit. We couldn't even produce revival when God brought us down to our knees, man, and showed us that we can be attacked on our own soil. That should have been a humbling experience for us, but it didn't humble us much. I would have thought thought Katrina would have humbled us. I mean, it pretty much savagely wrecked an entire state. To which we even see people that had to like completely pick up everything they know and move and never want to go back. It 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 changed them so significantly. That didn't, that didn't help us any. I mean, I, I, when the housing market crashed and everybody started losing everything, we didn't fill up. No no churches filled up when that happened. Matter of fact, they if anything they they left the church. It wasn't a season of giving. It was a season of begging for the church. They were all crying about how their ties went down. And the church, like, missed their opportunity. And worrying about their finances and their buildings, they missed their opportunity with the gospel. That's because you don't have vision because the Holy Spirit ain't there. You couldn't capitalize on the crisis when it happened that God was giving you a chance to be the beck and call, the lighthouse, showing people the way. How much time do we give to prayer to you? How much time do you give personally to prayer? What if your prayer life was the measure by which our love of Christ was made known? I mean, for instance, let's just be honest, man. I mean, I can tell you how close you are as a couple, but there's no way like like you could tell the couples who aren't very close. They don't talk much. You can tell them they don't hold hands. They don't act like they seem to listen. If you I'm going to tell you right now, it's just straight up marriage counseling one on one. If you don't talk to your spouse, guess what? Over time, you're probably going to not be in love with them. <laughs> you have to communicate. There has to be times of intimacy or you're going to struggle in relationship. And if you have no prayer life with God, then how can you ever say you know him? I mean, some of us pride ourselves on our marriage, but man, we should pride on ourselves on how much we know Jesus and how much we love him and how much we're with him. When will revival come for you? How about for your kids? Man, I, 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 I'll be honest, man. I'm in a place where I'm like, well, Lord, even if it doesn't come to me. Because like, I'm like anybody else. I, I can get disheartened really easy, just like anybody else can. And then I start thinking, well, what keeps me going is this. Well, then that's not for me, then for my kids, God, will you? That's what it becomes for me. Well, if not for my kids, then for my grandkids, God. Is there any hope for them? Because America offers none. America offers none. Our system, our church is so messed up. Everything is so messed up. God, Lord, you're the only hope. You're the only hope. And if you won't come, if you won't come during my time, God, I will endure to set them up so that maybe you might come here. And I will preach hard, God, and I will tell people and I will pray, God, and I will do everything in my power to make sure the next generation will experience revival then. Because maybe if I can't experience revival, maybe I can set the next generation up for that success. Where is our cross? Is it sitting in the closet? Where is our selflessness towards the future beyond our own life? It's not about us, man. At some point, life can't continue to keep being about you. The bad part about technology today is it's created this idea where you're still kind of important. I love you. but I'm going to tell you right now, there's a whole other generation behind us, man. And we have the opportunity to selflessly serve them and let it not be about us. I, I, you know, I wrote a song here recently called Kaufman, and it talks about growing up in my small town. And many of you probably saw it, but I'm going to tell you, here's what I learned about writing the song. My time is over. My time being a kid is done. Those were are those then. I lived my life. I mean, like, in that sense, you know, I'm not saying my life is over, but no, but the, the experiences that I once felt where everything was about me, that part is over in my life. That's why they say youth is wasted on the young, because if you really understood what you got while you're young, you'd really live it, you know? I had somebody try to tell me the other day about wisdom. He says, man, he said, "Uh, you know, it's good taking advice from the others so you don't have to learn the hard way. And I said, man, don't deny me the hard way. I might have learned a lot of things the hard way, but by gosh, I lived. Can you imagine if you always took everybody's advice and you did everything and never had to experience any kind of hardship? My gosh, what kind of person would you be? And would I ever want to ever have advice from you? <laughs> because why would you know anything but by the advice of others? Wisdom, I have found that when God says, well, God, they, they, they correct me. So, you know, God, wisdom comes from God. I said, I'm sure. I'm sure he gives it just like he gives patience. He gives me opportunities to exercise wisdom, opportunities to learn wisdom, opportunities to learn patience. I, I, I've got an opportunity to live my life. But my life from, from zero to 18, I got to have fun. And I did all these things. I explored sin. I feel like I had a Solomon life where I explored sin. And God said, now that time is over, it's time to be mine. Life about you is over, it's time about life about them. Life about you. I live for you, my hope is that you live for someone else. You live for me, you live for everyone, we're living for each other. Selfless. It's not about me, it's about you. It's not about you, it's about someone else. If revival comes to those who desperately seek God, then what does that say about us? How come nobody ever asks these questions? It's because they don't want to admit that it might be their problem, too, or their fault. Like, by the way, me preaching that doesn't exclaim it. I can, like, point it and say you, but don't you know that I'm saying me as well? Like, these are the questions that, first of all, that God speaks to me about. Like, how much are you praying? Like, believe me, in the back of my head is Leonard Ravenhill going, a man ain't worth his paycheck, Jim, unless the pastor's preaching at least three hours a day. And I'm like, my gosh, how am I ever going to reach that? So the whole time I'm going, man... I know that three hours isn't what's going to make me a better preacher. What's going to make me a preacher is that me spending long times with God and then trying to figure out, Lord, when is that enough? And when are times where I shouldn't? And, 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 like, and if, by the way, if I'm already talking about when I shouldn't pray, I'm having a problem. <laughs> so we say, what happens after Easter, man? I think the apostles would have a different point, like a different answer than we would. Can you imagine today, like, hey, what, what do you think happens after Easter? The apostles, like, man, I think uh, I think the Holy Spirit shows up, man, and I think God shows out. Like, this is their life, right? I think the Holy Spirit shows up. I think we waited right in the room for Jesus to pray, and we prayed, and we sought the Lord, and we gave him everything we had, and we treated it like it was the most desperate moment because God, for those three years of my life, man, as I walked with him, changed me so significantly, radically, shifted my life so greatly that I dare not leave the room until that thing started pouring itself in so that when it came, not only only was my ears in tune to what it was saying I could hear it coming I could hear it coming down the down the street so much even through the door through the clay walls I could hear it coming that when I stepped out and hadn't prepared a message I knew what I was going to say I didn't even have to think about it anymore can you imagine Peter telling the story about that moment I, don't have to, I didn't have to prepare a sermon. The Holy Spirit engulfed me. And all of a sudden, scriptures I didn't even know I knew came out of my mouth. And I began to witness and testify to the glory of God. Man, what happened after Easter? Man, I went home, took a nap, watched some TV. Wish football was still on. Welcome to the day. Sorry to be kicking on you. I love you, but I don't preach this to hammer anybody. I preach this because it's the vision of this church. We will not settle for mundane, mediocre church. We are launching towards revival. You know what that means? That means we're going to have empty seats. We're going to have times where, man, it's just too hard. And you need breaks because it's always thick and it's always heavy and it's always deep and it's always hard because revival doesn't come easy. Changing the world never has been easy. Go back and look at all the prophets. By the way, Jesus is the one who said, you who, ki- no, yeah, you who killed the prophets. You who killed the prophets. Oh, yeah, you know who you are. You've always hated revival. You've always hated it when I came. It was- and by the way, you who killed the prophets is the church. You've always hated revival. You've always hated these things. You've always had trouble with these things. Why? Because it works against you, because it's not organized, because it's chaos. I mean, think about the the ministry of Jesus is so hard because he preaches grace all the time. Well, Jesus, if I preach grace all the time like you, don't you realize um, people don't stick around? You only had 12, bro, that hung with you. You might have preached to multitudes, but multitudes at the end weren't with you. Even at the end, man, there wasn't even hardly 12 with you. I mean, listen, just face it. I mean, like for, for the type of preaching Jesus did, the type of teaching that he did, it was never easy, and there was never lots of people that just stayed around. The fact that there's 120 in the upper room is amazing because they weren't there at the cross. On Easter, they weren't there either. They showed up after the fact, once they saw the resurrection, once it seemed like a miracle had taken place. And I guarantee you that 120 went from 3,000, not because Peter preached a great message. He didn't even prepare. No, 3,000 come to the Lord because of the Holy Spirit. Because God intervenes into the lives of his people. And what we need in this church, what we need in this city is God intervening into the lives of his people man, I need your help here. I need you to be prayer warriors. And when I say it, I don't mean it like, hey, be prayer warriors. Now go out and have a good day. I mean like you're going to get down tonight and you're going to pray. And you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to pray. And it's not going to be easy. The devil's going to do all kinds of things to distract you. The devil's going to do all kinds of things to make your life miserable and to make it hard. All of a sudden, there's going to be crises that step up into your life and are going to beat you down. Man, I, I mean, look at Elijah. Elijah brought fire down from heaven, but most of the time he spent holed up in a cave crying. When the, when the fat, when, when all of a sudden he shut the reins from heaven, right, what do he have to do? He had to, like, make his way down by a creek and wait for God to bring him a, a raven that would bring him food and drink water out of the creek until that dried up, and then he had to pray, please bring me somebody, and then he leads him into the widow's house where he has to do some supernatural stuff, right, to even make food in that house. I mean, even the prophets, the guys who were fully engulfed in following God, lived one hardship after another hardship after another. We forget the hardships that they endured because all we can remember is fire coming down. Well, can I tell you, when revival comes, you'll forget about your hardships. When revival comes, you'll forget about how hard it was to come, how hard it was to be this way, how hard it was to pray, and how hard it was to sing. You'll forget about all the things that happened in your life, the mean people, all these other things you won't care anymore. Why? Because the love of God will be in you. Come on. I don't know how much worship we're going to be able to get to do a little bit here with the guitar and stuff, but we are going to worship this morning. And as we worship this morning, we're going to, we're going to sing about these things. We're going to sing about revival. We're going to sing about our hearts. And, and, and again, this is not a hammer. This is, man, this is meant to be more like a cheerleading event, man, trying to get us moving moving and stirred about God and the things of God and the Holy Spirit I want to see him pour himself out but I can't preach that in God comes to those who seek comes to those who seek and i want to be a seeker amen stand to your feet this morning resemble you people will know you and they can't help but love you with they